so this is very this is really up my alley i would say in terms of uh, interest uh your book american wolf from nazi refugee to american spy so before we get into it uh you grew up in if i'm mistaken new york correct in queens in queens so uh you guess give us a little bit of your um your background how this led into the book yeah so i grew up um kind of with this knowledge you know infused in me since early childhood that my father was a holocaust survivor that he had escaped nazi germany and we just it was like part of like the lore you know that mm. uh we just kind of talked about from as early as i could remember my sister and i talk about this all the time we're like when did we know we're like we always knew and my father had you know told us stories and he didn't tell it with um like sorrow it was more like an adventure story like it was his great escape it was it seemed like something he was really almost like proud of like i escaped i'm german and i escaped nazi germany and we were on the last boat out and we were on the last not <laughs> the boat wasn't out of germany it was out of uh, out of Spain, but it was the last train out because it was late. It was 1941 and it was well into the war. Um, but then, you know, it sort of came to a time when he stopped talking about it because it was assumed that we sort of knew. Mm -hmm. So even though we had been inundated early on with like Holocaust documentaries and everything, we just, we just stopped talking about it. And then, um, you know, I went on to, um, you know, I had a career in medicine, um, till uh till 2020 and um but in in um 2018 my my father passed away um and i was preparing his eulogy and i realized that i just didn't remember like any of the details of his story and it was such a seminal part of his life that i knew like i had to say something so i i knew that he had written down a lot of his life story in a and a lot when I say a lot it was like uh, he wrote a tome of you know 350 pages and it had been maybe like 15 years before that he had written it and I had perused it at the time but it was it was so detailed and I have to admit like so boring <laughs> to read and I was like yeah yeah dad okay and I put it in my attic and I kind of forgot about it because it was like okay these are all your relatives and these are all the people that died and this is what my apartment looked like. And, you know, this is where the fireplace was. And this is where the kitchen was. And it was like, it was just unreadable. But now I had to like pull it out and, you know, kind of use it for data, you know, so I can like tell his story. So I pulled it out of my attic and I, you know, used it for data. And then I kind of put it away again until I retired. And my, my mother was like, dad, dad really wanted to publish his book, you know, his book, you know, it's like his great masterpiece. And I was like, it's not publishable. <laughs> but then I would see her again. And he's like, but dad, you know, are you, are you going to publish his book? Are you going to publish his book? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, mom, sure. And and then when I stopped working, I, I and then the pandemic came, I was like, yeah, I have time. Let me take a look at it and see if I could take a stab at it. So that was kind of the roots of, of how it all began, um, except for the fact that, you know, I had never written anything except a, like a consult letter or like a chapter on, you know, diary and children. You know? yeah. It wasn't really like I had this uh, creative writing uh, talents in my DNA that I that I knew of. But when you when you started doing uh, when you actually started writing because you had to go filter through the notes, you put it back down, you start filtering the writing when you did you get uh, help or did you write it all out and then say, I need, I need fresh eyes to look at this. 
Yeah. So if you knew me, you would know that there's no such thing as getting help in my house. <laughs> we are do-it-yourselfers. We do everything ourselves. Uh, so no, I, there's no such thing as help. I, everything I did was on my own, except for the, when um, I had my first full iteration of it that I was happy with it. I sent it to friends to read, you know, dear, cherished people to read, including my mother and my sister. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I say, actually, you know, my mother, my sister and I are pretty capable writers in terms of just, you know, grammar and um, uh, vocabulary. And and my my dad, at some point in his life, although he was an accountant, he did have a, a business that included writing and he wrote for accountants, but uh, and we were his proofreaders. So I think we were pretty decent at uh, editing, you know, so I, we didn't feel, I didn't feel I needed a professional editor, um, though I, I I would say that I have found a couple, couple of, <laughs> couple of little uh, edit mistakes there. So uh, some people might disagree, but uh, I would, no, I think I did it uh, all myself, except with the help of, of friends. Um, but I, there were a lot, a lot of iterations of this because I had to first get my father's notes in some coherent form. Then I had to uh, fact check it for accuracy. Mm -hmm. Then I had to look into all the things he didn't know because he didn't have computer access at the time. So what happened to all these friends and relatives and where, you know, how did they die? He didn't even know. Um, but then I had to make it into a form that was accessible emotional and readable and that took a skill that i didn't know i had right you know which is like how do you get people into a story and to do that i had to enter the story i had to be him mm -hmm. and that was like uh transformative i guess really um you know and sometimes i was confused like i would say like oh and my uncle and i was like no that's no, not my uncle it's my dad's uncle because i really sometimes thought i was him right you had to kind of put yourself in the shoes and then uh drive the narrative in that sense and that's challenging and, and like you said technical writing is one thing and you have it and you have editing skills but writing a story or or, or becoming the characters that that's rather difficult I, that's where i struggle like I, i'll i'll write poetry and that's fine and i write um short stories and I, i've actually taken a stab at writing a, a book but as you as you mentioned it's super difficult and um I, I don't know if I myself have that story uh, capabilities, but um, did you, when you, when you did it, cause you said you had to take notes down from your, your, your uh, from the journals and, and try to like fact check everything. Did you make yourself a little office war room where you had to put things on the wall with post-it notes and, and lay it all out? So no, I, I was, um, I'm not, um, I'm not an outliner. Um, I'm much more like in my head. So I, um, I, everything I did was pretty spontaneous and linear. Um, you know, I had chapters and, you know, I, I just cutting and pacing and, and, and things like that, but, but no, I didn't have, uh, there was no war room. I mean, I did have a place where I worked, but, um, uh, it was more like going back to it and reworking it and making it bigger and more, you know, finding the places that were weak and creating more uh, detail and more depth and more um, more juice, I guess, um, you know, wherever I could when I would go over it again and again and again until it became something. Right. Uh, so but no, no, there was no there was no uh, <laughs> that, there was 
I, I asked yeah, because yeah. that's that's how yeah. I work. I have to I have to throw everything everywhere. I have to put post-it notes on the wall. I have to. In fact, right now I've actually cleaned up pretty pretty decent in this closet spare uh, spare room. But um, it's interesting to find out how people work because I've interviewed a couple of authors in the last couple of years. Well, more than a couple of authors, but and they all do it differently. Uh, they either have, like you said, they wrote it down, or it's all in their head, or it's all over the place, and and they just. It's it's just fascinating. I think I just the way I've always worked has been I am only organizing my head. But if you ask me to like write out my you know to do list and you know have like this you know I I don't think I could do it. I mean I was like did my work obviously as a physician I had to get my work done in a timely way and be organized. But I would never be able to do it. It was always in, in my head. Like I have good memory and memory skills, but um, I actually don't have such great organizational skills in mm -hmm. the way that you describe like I, I never did in school I always just was great at memorizing and um but outlining was not, definitely not my not my thing and probably at this stage of my life probably probably never will be <laughs> I have to get to but that's, but that's of that. yeah that's okay that we all have our strengths and weaknesses so that's the that's the tidbit of you uh how you came to be about writing the story now tell us a little bit about the story Right. So the story is um, is a mixture of, of several things. It is an it is a Holocaust escape story, um, but it's built on a family story. So my dad was born in Germany in 1930 in Berlin um, to a family that was, you know, like like a lot of dysfunctional families. You know, mom was tough, maybe neurotic and insecure. His dad was a dreamer, a drifter, maybe not so ambitious. And his parents didn't really get along well at all. And they were pretty poor when they got to Germany, which was unusual for Jewish people. Most of the people you read about people who like had a lot of money in Germany and then they lost everything. They had manufacturing jobs and everything. But my family were desperately trying to make it to the middle class they weren't mm -hmm. even working class and so they worked so hard to get somewhere that when it was time to leave they were like we can't leave now we just made it right. so they made some like very very serious errors in judgment when people were leaving they were like oh now some opportunities have developed because people left and my my grandfather was a salesman and uh, the store he was working for became available because the owner said, we're leaving, we're hightailing it out of it to Argentina. You want to buy the store for peanuts? And my grandparents were like, yay, we could become store owners. This right. will never happen to us again. So they made this grave error in um, buying a store in 1936, right after the Nuremberg laws were basically frightening everybody into leaving. And they're like, we're, we're staying. <laughs> so they, um, they made this very bad error in judgment and and stayed on in Berlin and it really only lasted a year by by 1937 they knew it was time to go and they put in their application and the thing is that you know nobody wanted um you know it was Hitler's big joke he was like well we don't want the Jews we want them all to leave this is before they decided to kill everybody but nobody wanted to take them nobody you know the immigration doors were closed and so um it, it took you know four and a half years for them to get um, a visa. But by then the war had started and it was impossible to get out. So even though they had a visa, this escape route that they had to take was so difficult um, and trying that by the time they made it to a port of exit, 
their visas had expired. Wow. And so, you know, it was like just this huge bureaucratic nightmare of how they were going to get out and how they were going to get onto a ship without visas because you could not get onto a ship unless you had a, an active visa to the United States. So I won't, I don't want to spoil the, the big surprises, but um, they did um, eventually make it on to a ship without their visas, but the ship was uh, referred to as a floating concentration camp. It was really like a hell ship, which people died. Half of them got dis uh, terrible dysentery. But ultimately they, they did make it here, but the, the book continues into what it was like being in America they did not have an easy time. They face a lot more tragedy and difficulty here. And my father was really just struggling with his identity. This was a book about rejection and acceptance and the difficulty he had with, with all of that as he grew up and kind of um, came of age in the U United States, uh, facing a lot of, lot of obstacles. And eventually he returned to Germany as an intelligence officer in the Cold War. And, you know, once again, he was faced with, well, who am I? I'm German, Jewish, American. I don't know what I am. Nobody mm -hmm. really wants me in any of these, you know, ways. And and then, you know, coming back to Germany, he was really homesick for Germany. But um, and then all of a sudden he's realizing that all of these people here that he was homesick for, you know, were former Nazis. So he's, like, you know, again, this sort of like identity crisis. Um, and and he, he does um, come to some resolution of who he is when he comes back to America after the war. And he finds uh, some, you know, sense of peace, love and happiness, you know, at his return. So it, it's a full circle of, you know, from Germany to America and back again and uh, finding, you know, sort of self-acceptance um, in the end. So it is a family drama. That is a book pitch I've never heard before. <laughs> that, that, that is somebody who knows. Their, knows <laughs> no, it's perfect. It was like beginning to end without giving too much away. Exactly knows the story, uh, invested in the story, and nobody, no, no author has ever given me a pitch like that before. So that kudos to you. That's fantastic. Uh, I, that's, I don't know if that's good, but no, no, it's very that's very good. But that it's it sounds uh I mean obviously um I'm interested in this stuff in general, but based on what you just told me on top of the synopsis that I'm reading from Amazon, it's it's uh it sounds very interesting and I and I hope it does appeal to other people. Um, so if I, and I have all your links open, I'm working with two screens. Um, okay. if I go to your webpage, which is Audrey yeah. uh, it's laid out very, very, very nice. And if you scroll down the books there, uh, and there's a about you page and we got links to, and it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and it's at, uh, your Walmart and your local bookstore possibly too. Where, where, uh, where, I mean, I, we're a little bit strange here with all the books and, and the bookstores here and everything's uh, a bit over the place, but I I've seen it's on .com, it's on .ca, uh, Barnes and Noble, but it's at, it's at Walmart too. It is. Wow. That's I amazing. know. Can you believe it? No, I, I honestly never. <laughs> I really I, wanted at the airport. That's like, to me would be the greatest triumph would be you go to the airport yeah. and you find, you know, here it is the book and you're like, Oh, I think I'll read that on the plane because everyone says it's a fast read that it's like hard to put down. Right. So I was like, you know, I, I'd read it on the plane. That's genius. Actually. I don't know how to get into the airport. You just, you, you just bring a bunch of copies and you make a nice little <laughs> placement. Like, Nobody's <laughs> just leave it there. No, that, that, that that's fantastic. Coffee, it's advertising. Yeah. So, uh, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, so it's available at Walmart, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and your local bookstores. Um, 
And there's also a gallery section for your book with uh, images from from the 1930s. And I'm these are part of the book. These images are part of the book. So most of them are in the book, but some of them I called from uh, the, the Internet from, you know, just pictures. So some of my family members who made it out earlier ended up on the St. Louis. Um, mm -hmm. So the St. Louis, I've, for people who might not know, was a ship that was famous for. Uh, it was 1938, and it was more of like a luxury cruise liner as opposed to my father's ship, uh, the Navamar, which was a freight ship. Um, so the St. Louis was a luxury cruise liner, and it ended up in Cuba, and people had visas for Cuba, all valid. And Cuba then said, no, we're not going to let you in. We changed our minds. And, um, and then nobody would take the ship including the U.S. They said, and some people jumped overboard. They were hoping to swim to the U.S. because oh it was God. right near the coast. Right. And uh, in the end, the ship turned around and, and many of the countries like um, uh, Holland and Denmark and Britain took, you know, many of these passengers back. But it ends up that a lot of those countries ended up, you know, being uh, swept up in, in uh, you know, Jewish people, you know, ending up in concentration camps. So about... 300 of the passengers uh, ended up uh, dying in concentration camps just because the ship wasn't uh, taken. You know, the U.S. was very complicit in um, not taking refugees right. at the time, you know, which is, you know, a tragic part of our history, unfortunately. Um, so that's, uh, so I have pictures of the St. Louis. I have pictures of my father's ship there. Um and just uh, articles from when his ship came in because it was such a horrible journey. It was written up in a lot of the newspapers. So a lot of the newspaper articles are in there as well. So I just like added some things that I couldn't get into the book as well for, for just people who are interested in World War II history. Yeah, that's awesome. Great. And uh, in terms of that, your social media avenue, you're on Facebook, you're on Instagram, you're also on LinkedIn. Um, I don't believe you're on Twitter. No, I me Twitter. and Twitter are like we don't we don't know each other very well. That's okay. <laughs> Twitter confuses me. You know, I was um, uh, I'm you know, I'm a little older than you, and so uh, social media is, you know, kind of uh, not something I grew up with really. So, um, it was a whole learning curve for me to be on it because for me, like Facebook was like a brand page, and I'm I'm kind of a modest person, so I was like, I don't want to be on Facebook. I don't want to say like, oh. See my interview with Mr. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Go watch it on, on YouTube. Uh, you know, it's not really my, um, it's not my nature. <laughs> but now well, I do it and I get good feedback. And, you know, and it's, you know, it's part of, again, writing the book is just part one, right? The other part is getting people to read it. Otherwise, what's the point? Well, yeah. part of it, part of it is the marketing. And that's what everybody says is that it's, you know, you're going on to talk shows, podcasts, different places, or you're trying to go to the local bookstore, bring your book and say, can you put this in front of your window? And then you know, we're in the age of social media, where literally, if you don't have social media, you get no exposure. So um, it's I, I, I enjoy it. I think during the pandemic, I, I started getting into uh like I used it for news, really, Twitter, but at the time for sports and stuff like that. But during the pandemic, because I was doing educational leadership, uh, studying at McGill University here, I, I was told that I needed it. So I started doing it and then it's kind of spiraled. So my Twitter account is large, is relatively large um, and I have a bit of a little bit of reach on there. So now it's kind of turned into like, uh, like uh, uh, 
I don't know, like it's a snowball that just keeps growing and growing and growing. And you, you kind of can't, you kind of can't stop because there's so many people message me with their books, with their stories, with the different things, or just, you know, kind of reaching out saying, Hey, Mike, how are you? Or I'm having a bad day. So uh, it's become one of those things. So that, I'll take it as a positive, um, as opposed to all those, uh, uh, those, those negative stories that people have with social media. Um, definitely not for are you everybody. Tell, are you telling me I have to have a Twitter account? Is that what you're telling me? You don't have to, but if you do, I'll definitely tell everybody to follow you. Okay. Um, well, so I, I figured out how to use everything, you know, again, mostly by myself, but also, you know, my, my kids, my nephew, uh, my, you know, so I will, I will teach myself how to do this too. It's, <laughs> I fully believe it's, if I could teach myself how yeah. to write a book, I could teach myself how to use Twitter. Well, I find I Twitter is more analytical in, in the sense that it's, it's, it's about writing and your messages rather than. Uh, let's say Instagram per se, that's videos and, and images. Right. So, and there is a large network of writers and, uh, and authors on there. So um, I happen to be privy to that with everybody, but uh, you know, it's not for everybody and that's fine. Uh, so there you go. There's all your social media. There's your webpage, your books available in multiple places and Walmart. And um, it's got good, some re good reviews, great stories. And before uh, before we wrap up, usually I like to give everybody the, um, the I like to give guests the the final words. So, is there any words of wisdom or something you'd like to finish finish us off with? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things. Uh, first of all, as a writer, um, you know, I think I faced like some obstacles initially, and I just didn't let them stop me. And it was good because this was because this was an homage to my father. Like I knew, I, I told my mother I was going to get it published. So God damn it. I, <laughs> I, got, I was going to get it published, you know? So that was good because, you know, otherwise maybe I would have, you know, maybe I would have given up or quit, but I kept plugging away at it. And I just kept, I just kept writing. And then I kept writing it over and making it better and better. But first I got it all down on paper. So I say that um, it's like a, to me, it was like a, like a, like a painting or drawing, you just like, you get it down and then you, you work on it and you own it, you know? So I think that, um, uh, you just don't even know like what you're capable of till you try it and, and work on it. Uh, so, uh, and then the second part of it is that the story, you know, these stories of, you know, survival are, you know, they're important to keep telling because, you know, of course history will always keep repeating itself it does because does. human nature doesn't change, which is why classic stories are always classic. That's why Tolstoy stories last and everything, because they're always about like human nature and human nature is always the same because we're motivated by the same things, you know, greed, arrogance, uh, you know, jealousy, passion, whatever it is. And so this is a story that isn't just about the Holocaust, but it's also about human nature, um, which is why I think it is sort of timeless and why people seem to be relating to it so well. And that's the last word for me. <laughs> uh, well said, well spoken, and uh, great, great book pitch, uh, American Wolf by Audrey Birnbaum. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. And uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch, especially if you make a Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'm, I'm on it. I'm on it. That's my next job. Awesome. Okay. I'll just stop. Thank you, everyone, for being a part of the Mr. Mike Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to your platform of choice. For more updates and exclusive content, visit our website at www.mrmikemtl.com. 
Stay relaxed, stay inspired, and we'll see you next time.